Um, the topic today is prayer. And um, that has become a really big thing with me. It's important to God. Uh, it was prayer when I was an athletic trainer for the women's gymnastics team in Nebraska that five of those women were praying for me. I was not saved. I was not born again. And they prayed for me. And um, God used one of the gymnasts uh, to share the gospel with me, and I gave my life over to Christ on April 20th, 1991, in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. So I love saying Tuscaloosa. Uh, it's just a favorite place of mine. They've probably torn down that motel we stayed at. But um, that is my testimony. I gave my life over to Christ, and it was because the prayer of faithful people, effectual, fervent prayer of those, those ladies on the team. So today we're going to talk about prayer, and we're going to be in Daniel chapter 9. So I'm going to give you time to turn to that. Uh, in the Old Testament. This is a prayer of brokenness uh, for Daniel and his people. What has God taught me about prayer? Well, he's taught me one thing, is that you know the old saying, people don't care how much you know, they want to know how much you care. And praying with people on a regular basis um, lets people know that you do truly care. God has taken me uh, different places. Um, when Giles preached uh, a while back on if you were sick, the, to go to the elders and pray, and when, when that happened and we did that and people came to us and prayed after those services, um, it wasn't a self-exalting thing. It was a humbling thing because those people were entrusting us to bring them to the foot of the cross and to pray for them and to continue to pray for them. And God has answered prayer in a lot of those things. People have come back to the Word. They've come back to God. So prayer is a, an awesome thing because we get to approach the throne of grace. I've had the privilege of praying with an older gentleman in Menards uh, in early January. Uh, I used to let the fear of man uh, tell me that I, I'm not going to pray with this guy out in public, you know, uh, Prayers for like when we're alone somewhere in the church building or whatever. But uh, taking those opportunities to pray with people touches their lives. And more than anything, you walk away from that being extremely blessed from those opportunities. Uh, Two weeks ago, I was at Pinnacle Bank Arena in Lincoln, Nebraska at the state tournament after Scott's Bluff lost horribly uh, in the first round. I sat with my brother and his wife uh, in the coaches area. And his wife began to talk about her mom having breast cancer and having surgery that day. And her mom didn't want her daughter to be there for the surgery. She wanted her to go to the state basketball tournament with my brother um, because that's what they always do. And so uh, I was talking to her about it, and she just started tearing up. And I said, you know what? It doesn't matter where we're at. This is important to you. We need to, need to pray. And so I reached across my brother's lap, and we and my brother put his arms around me and his wife, and we prayed right there. And that blesses people, and it blesses me. It's amazing what it did. Uh, my brother and I are not close. Um, geographically, he's living in Holders, Nebraska. I'm, I've been out here for 27 years. Uh, he's four years older. So uh, when he got done uh, beating me against the center brick uh, column, playing basketball at home, and he graduated from high school. He went off to college, and I was going uh, in to be my freshman year. So I didn't really get to be close with him. Uh, He beat up on me a lot, and that's how close we got. So 
praying with people opens doors. It opens lines of communication. After I prayed with him, he just opened up about everything. And I've continued to pray for him and his situation at Holdridge with teaching and whatever. And he just continues to communicate with me. And it's been the best time of my life because I've wanted to be close with my brother, you know. And prayer has opened that up. God has opened that up. So uh, it has been a, it's a journey of brokenness. Uh, going to Menards and praying with somebody out in, the, in public, uh, that's more important than my schedule and making sure I can get back to the back of Menards to get my beef jerky um, and get going. I've always kind of used my schedule and routines to limit myself, limit myself in praying for others. And when people unload on you, all it takes is, hey, how's it going? How are you doing today? What's up? You know, uh, or however the, the younger kids say it today. But it was in my day, it was, what's up? You know, so that just opens up uh, doors to pray with people and to take them to the, the foot of the cross. Well, today we're in Daniel chapter 9. And Daniel was a great servant of God. He was about 80 years old at this time. He was an uncompromising man, a bold and courageous man, full of faith and unselfish, humble and meek. He was resistant to the encroachment of the world in his life. He was persistent in his devotion to God. He was trustworthy, virtuous, obedient, worshipful. But all those things, all those characteristics of Daniel were because he was a man of prayer. In chapter 6, if you turn back three chapters, Daniel serves Darius here. And he is told not to worship his own God, not to pray to his God. But the integrity of Daniel shines through on this. Starting in chapter 6, verse 1, it seems good to Darius to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom that they would be in charge of the whole kingdom. And over them, three commissioners of whom Daniel was one, that these satraps might be accountable to them and that the king might not suffer loss. Then this Daniel began distinguishing himself among the commissioners and satraps because he possessed an extraordinary spirit. And the king planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom. Then the commissioners and satraps began trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs, but they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption inasmuch as he was faithful, and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. So that those commissioners and satraps, they don't find anything uh, faulty in him, no accusations or negligence or corruption So they go to King Darius and they say, King Darius, please make a law that uh, no one can worship any other god but you, O King Darius. And so he makes this edict, and, and King Darius knows Daniel, and yet he makes this. And if you know anything about the, the laws that were made during that time, uh, even the king cannot take back those laws. And in verse 10, now when Daniel knew that the document was signed, that the law was made, he entered his house. Now in his roof chamber, chamber, he had windows open toward Jerusalem, and he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God as he had been doing previously. And so he did that, and he was consistent. He was persistent in his prayer, devotion to God, no matter what. Okay, and we all know the story that they found him uh, in violation of that law, and King Darius um, uh, agonized over that and tried to find uh, a way to get out of that 
uh, verse 18 at the end of that, it says, his sleep fled for him. But then the king arose at dawn, and he, ran, he went to where Daniel was in the den of lions. And Daniel spoke to the king. We all know the story. O king, live forever. My God has sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth, and they have not harmed me inasmuch as I was found innocent before him. So that is Daniel. That is his integrity, his character. Daniel, even though he knew the document was signed, making the decree official, continued to do what he's always done, and that is to kneel three times a day, praying and giving thanks to God, facing Jerusalem. He was an uncompromising man of God. Have you heard of the saying, if you honor God in all that you do, that he will honor you? Daniel knew that, and God blessed Daniel because he walked humbly before his God. Daniel didn't hesitate in his unwavering devotion to God. He opens the windows of his room, and facing Jerusalem, he continues to pray to God. Daniel is a man of prayer. If you've not figured that out already, as, we, as I've talked, he is a man of prayer. He puts a lot of um, clout into that, a value into prayer, because he's know, he, know he's approaching his God. And we see his uncompromising boldness and courage that's born out of prayer. So Daniel goes one step further into chapter 9, and this is the prayer of brokenness. This is a prayer of confession. So Daniel, as God's compassionate, heartbroken servant, he intercedes on behalf for the people whom he loves. It is a passionate prayer that comes from the heart of a shepherd. So let's read Daniel 9, and we're going to read, I'm going to read verses 1 through 19. Uh, It's heavy, a lot of confession, but I'm going to go ahead and read this and follow along. So Daniel 9, 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus of Median descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of the years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. 70 years. So, because of that, so I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned, committed iniquity, acted wickedly, and rebelled, even turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. Moreover, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. Verse 7. Righteousness belongs to you, O Lord, but to us open shame. As it is this day to the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all Israel, those who are nearby and those who are far away in all the countries to which you have driven them because of their unfaithful deeds which they have committed against you. Open shame belongs to to us, O Lord, to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong compassion and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him. Nor have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his teachings which he set before us through his servants the prophets. Indeed, all Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, not obeying your voice. So the curse has been poured out on us, along with the oath which is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, for we have sinned against him. Thus he has confirmed his words, which he has spoken against us and against our rulers who ruled us, to bring on us great calamity, for under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what, we, what was done to Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses... All this calamity has come on us, yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our iniquity and giving attention to your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept the calamity in store and brought on us. The Lord our God is righteous 
with respect to all his deeds which he has done, but we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord, our God, who have brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself, as it is this day, we have sinned, we have been wicked. O Lord, in accordance with all your righteous acts, let now your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain. For because of our sins and in the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a reproach to all those around us. So now, our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his supplications. And for your sake, O Lord, let your face shine on your desolate sanctuary. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city which is called by your name. For we are not presenting our supplications before you on account of any merits of our own, but on account of your great compassion. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and take action for your own sake. O my God, do not delay because your city and your people are called by your name. Can you identify with that? I I think of the things that I read aside here of rebelled, turning aside. We have not listened. We have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our iniquity and giving attention to your truth. Do we give our, our attention to his truth? Just a little background to uh, this time that Daniel served. There's two major themes of Daniel. One is God's sovereign control over the affairs of all rulers and nations and their final replacement with the one true king, Jesus Christ. Number two, the display of God's sovereign power through miracles. Namely, and in the book of Daniel, one, God's writing on the wall and Daniel interpreting that. Number two, God's Protection of the three men of the blazing furnace. Number three, God's protection of Daniel in the den of lions. The Medo-Persian kingdom has come. The kingdom of Babylon has been overturned and been taken over by the Medo-Persian empire. empire, And they are the second great world empire to be succeeded by Greece and then by Rome. And Daniel has been the commissioner in the nation during the Babylonian kingdom and continues to be the commissioner in the Medo-Persian kingdom. Very few people we know last when there's an overturning of government to last through that uh, ordeal. For Daniel to remain commissioner from one world power dethroned and destroyed to a new power puts, put in its place, and Daniel to remain that commissioner speaks to Daniel's integrity of his life and of his, uh, him being a man of God. So Darius reigns on the throne. This is the time that Daniel petitions God in prayer. And in verse 2, Daniel observes the books, the word of the Lord to Jeremiah. Jeremiah had been given by God the message that Israel would be in Babylonian captivity for 70 years. And so Daniel recognizes that captivity and how long it will last. This then spurs his prayer to God. Daniel longs to see the end of Judah's captivity. He compassionately wants to see the restoration of his people. So he intercedes on behalf of them. And these elements that I'm going to list here of prayer should be consistent in our prayer lives. I'm not saying that uh, if they're not all these aspects, if all these aspects are not consistent, then well, God's not going to honor your prayer. There are prayers where we are desperate for God's strength and power in our lives and to heal. And all of us have prayed for healing for somebody that's been sick or strength for the times that we've been dealt with death of a family member, or circumstances of losing a job, uh, we pray those selfish prayers, and that's, that's fine, that's okay. 
but we're going to talk about what uh, some elements of prayer that can, should be consistent in, in your time as you approach God. So number one, prayer is in response to the Word of God. How many times are we drawn to prayer after we've read the Word? When I read in Psalms and I read about God's goodness, uh, how he's in control of all things, I am drawn to prayer. I am drawn to be on my knees. We know that Hebrews 4.12 says that the Word is living and active. The word, this is not dead. This is, there's not a dull word in this whole book. This word pierces the soul. If you think you can get away with just reading his word and not have a changed life, you're mistaken. Because if you're a believer and you're reading his word, that word has the power to change. It has the power to save. It has the power um, to change lives that you thought would never or could never be changed because people are too stubborn or too far into their sin. It's powerful enough to save family that doesn't know Jesus. I think we all have that. It's powerful. It pierces the soul. And so Daniel prayed in response to the teaching of Scripture. On one hand, he saw the certainty of divine sovereign purpose that the Babylonian captivity had to be 70 years. But on the other hand, he saw the necessity of prayer in his life. To see that God has a sovereign plan clearly indicated in Scripture and still be burdened to pray is a perfect balance. The tendency would be to say, why, why pray if this is already God's will? Why pray if I, if I, I know this is going to happen, I can't do anything to stop it or to change it? But that is not Daniel's spirit here. One of the basic elements of prayer is that prayer is a means by which the believer lines himself up with the sovereign purpose of God. It is what you do because of the passion of your heart. The power of the word drives us to our knees when we respond rightly to the word of God. And Daniel knows that the 70 years are close to being up, and yet he is compassionately involved with the tragedy of his people, the tragedy of his people turning away from the Lord. Our hearts should be in tune with the heart of God, with the truth of Scripture that we cannot be indifferent to it. As you study the word of God, it ought to generate prayer and praise. When the word speaks of God, you ought to long to fellowship with him. When the word speaks of his blessing, it ought to bring prayer and praise. When the word speaks of his glory, we ought to long to give it to him. When it speaks of hell, it should compel us to pray for mercy for the lost. It should compel us to pray for our families and our friends that don't know Christ. We should be engulfed in the same passions that engulf the heart of God. What does Scripture say about David? And we know the story of David. He made his own mistakes, and yet Scripture says that David was a man after the heart, God's own heart. So are we people after God's own heart? The second aspect of prayer, and it is closely related to the first one, is that prayer is generated by God's word, and it is grounded in God's will. Daniel was, a pray, was praying to, according to God's will. 1 John 5.14 says, This is the confidence that we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. We pray not to change God's will, but rather our prayers 
uh, are grounded in the will of God as they are generated by the word of God. David in Psalm 40 verse 8 says, I delight to do your will, O my God. In John 4.34, Jesus, in his own relationship with the Father, said, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Deuteronomy 8.3, Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Are we living based on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God? This is the word of God, and it proceeds from him. The mouth of God. We have the instructions for godly living. Once Daniel knew God's will, having drawn it out of God's word, he knew how to pray. Sometimes I hear that uh, I just don't know how to pray about this. Um, have you been in the word? I can take you to the word. Let's sh- uh, find out how God wants us to pray for that. The number three element of prayer is characterized by fervency. Fervency is another word for passion. All these characteristics of prayer flow together and overlap. Once Daniel read the word of God, he was engulfed in the heart of God. It was grounded, he was grounded in the will of God, and once he understood it, he prayed consistently with God's will, and then his prayer was a fervent prayer. It was a passionate prayer. Verse 3 says, So, I gave my attention to the Lord to seek him by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. Even though Daniel knows the will of God in this, Daniel has the heart of a man who draws near to God and is going to be parallel to the heart of God. We are to pray without ceasing. Does that mean that we're constantly praying 24 hours, seven, 24 hours a day, seven days a week? It's a heart attitude. What is our heart attitude? Are we approaching God? Are we filtering everything that we deal with, the circumstances, the issues in our lives? Because on this side of heaven, this world's a bad deal. It's hard to go through. Are we filtering everything that we deal with and have to take care of through what the Word of God says? James 5.16, the latter half of it says, The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. The energetic, passionate prayers of godly people have the power to accomplish much. I think we all know people that are powerful in prayer, that we know we can go to and say, Hey, please pray for me. Pray this specifically, because we know that that is a godly individual that will approach the throne of grace and pray passionately. I know several people like that. God does amazing things through that. And so Daniel prays with intensity and passion. He gives his full attention to the Lord. Nehemiah 8.3, I preached out of that quite a while ago. But Nehemiah 8.3 says that Ezra read from the book of the law in the square which was in front of the water gate. And all the people were attentive to the book of the law. They turned their ear. They leaned forward because they wanted to hear the word of God. They had a singular focus on that, on the word of God. Ezra read from the book and all the people were attentive. They had a single-minded focus to know what God's will was. And this is the same focus that Daniel has in a determined focus completely on God. There's a lot of things I don't understand about God. Uh, on this side of heaven, we have a finite mind. Our minds are full of limits. We know that God is infinite. His mind is limitless. If we had a limitless mind, we wouldn't trust God. 
We wouldn't trust him for um, our days. We wouldn't trust him in the situations that we're in, in the lives that we're living. Uh, It's good that we have limits. We have to walk by faith. But when we align ourselves with God's design for how we are to walk, we begin to understand and know God's will for our lives. We are called to walk humbly before our God. Scripture tells us to pray, and so I do, because I want to know God intimately. Now the stress on this third point of fervency is Daniel's attitude. Daniel's attitude is one of resolute focus. He zeroes in, he sets his face, he gives complete attention to God. When we pray, we are recognizing and submitting to God's authority and sovereignty. And it says here in verse 3 that he dresses himself in sackcloth and ashes and he fasts. Do you get the picture that Daniel is consumed with God, that he wants to know the heart of God in this, in his prayer of confession? Fasting in Scripture is always connected to great importunity and fervency in prayer when the heart is so exercised over a spiritual reality that he has no desire for food. We fast because we are so consumed with knowing God's will that we can do nothing else. Has anybody been there in that? When something so exercises your concerns and you are so uh, focused on what's happening that you can't do anything but fast and pray to God to know his will for that situation. Food's a secondary thing. We fast because we are so consumed with knowing God's will that we can do nothing else. He talks about sackcloth and ashes. This is humility. Daniel was so persistent in prayer that when Daniel's answer comes in verses 20 and 22, he's still praying and seeking God. The essence of true prayer is not self-consumption, but a heart that is so overwrought and burdened and broken that it is a heart not concerned with selfish needs. It's a concern for others and their needs. Scripture says we are to deny ourselves daily and take up our cross and follow him, right? Daniel is demonstrating this passion in fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Our goal is not to try to resolve how God works and his control in our lives, the control in this world with our passion, but to pour out our heart and trust God that it fits into his plan. The fourth element of true prayer or prayer is realized in self-denial or humility. Daniel says in verse 4, I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed. And when he was confessing, um, John MacArthur says this about this verse. He says, we find wickedness in our own soul, deafness to the divine voice, disobedience to the clear and plain commands of Scripture. It brought Daniel to humility. Daniel lays the axe to the root of the tree of pride like we all have to. James 4, 9 and 10 says, and this is something you can put on your fridge. It'll be something to memorize. Be miserable, mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. Does that sound like a verse you want to put on your fridge? So that every time you open up the fridge door, you've seen that verse? Oh no, be miserable, mourn, and weep? But this points to being broken over sin. Mourning, uh, with the word mourn, God will not turn away a heart that is broken 
and contrite over sin. That's Psalm 51.17. Humility is the mark of one who is conscious of being in the presence of the majestic, infinitely holy God. Humility is the foundational attribute of one who walks with God. I meet with a couple men at Perkins on Wednesday nights at 7. And if you want to join, please come. But we started out in Ephesians 4, 1. It talks about how do we walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling of God. And the first characteristic of that is humility. That is the foundation for the rest of those attributes of walking before God. You have to be humble. You can't be proud. You can't be proud and be gentle. You can't be proud and and have unity with your fellow a believer in Christ. You have to be humble. You have to walk humbly before your God. For all of us, prayer is only genuine and powerful when it comes out of a pure life and an attitude of self-denial that says, Thy will, thy name, thy kingdom be done. It would be easy for Daniel to parade around and say, Hey, look how great I am. I am a commissioner. I'm a leader for these uh, this Babylonian kingdom and now the Medo-Persian kingdom. Look how great I am. He could have exalted himself, but he didn't. He didn't parade his greatness around. He didn't exalt himself above everybody else and demand things out of God. Daniel sees himself desperately in need of confessing failure. Charles Spurgeon, the great prince of preachers, as he was called, back in the late 1800s, early 1900s, he says, there is no brokenness of heart which Jesus cannot bind up. If you're here today, you're broken. But Jesus can bind it up. Jesus can heal you. He can make what's crooked straight in your life. He can meet your every need. Well, number five, the fifth element of prayer, is identification with God's people. We see this in Daniel's confession. Did you notice all the we's and the ours and the us's? It wasn't like he said, thank goodness, Lord, I'm not like them, but please help them. He didn't say, thank goodness, I'm not like them. He didn't exalt himself above it. He identifies identifies with his people. He didn't stand aloof from them. And this is a picture of a true servant of God, a true shepherd who is so intrinsically identified with his people that he never divorces himself from them. Our identification with each other should be so complete that we feel the pain and the guilt of other people's sins. With Daniel, there was a sense of solidarity. We have unity. If you're a believer in Christ and you're here today, you, we have unity because I have the same Christ you have. I have the same Holy Spirit. We are one in Christ. We serve the same God. We are in this together, this Christian life. It is a battle. I don't think I have to tell any of you that. We all have issues. We all have sin issues. This life on this earth is hard. As Christians, we are having to constantly battle the world, the flesh, and the devil. Why wouldn't we want to go immediately to Jesus instead of trusting in our own strength or our own intellect? We have to keep on relearning that lesson. Well, maybe I should be talking to myself. I have to keep on relearning that lesson. But I know on this side of the heaven, we fall short, and we're all going to make that mistake. We're all going to try and handle it ourselves. We're all going to try and push through the situation on our own strength that we'll get through it. 
But what does it do? It just leads to frustration and disappointment, to anxiousness or anxiety. We are called to pray for each other, to encourage each other. So Daniel passionately intercedes for his people. We were created for his glory. And that's the first and foremost reason why we were created. And the second thing, reason why we were created was to encourage one another. I've had people come to, me, come to me and tell me, hey, I saw you across the parking lot. It was just such an encouragement to me that you're going through the week and dealing with the same stuff that I'm dealing with sometimes and just knowing that you're doing it, that you're serving Christ in all that you do. And I had to tell them the same thing. I love seeing uh, other believers in Christ, other people that I fellowship, people from church uh, out in public during the week. If you're just trusting on getting your gas tank filled up on Sundays, from one Sunday to Sunday, it doesn't work. You need encouragement and fellowship throughout the week. Well, number six, the next element of prayer, and this is number six, has inherent in it a longing for righteousness. The essence of real prayer is a cry for righteousness, a cry for holiness. Why would we go to God each day and confess our sins before him if we didn't have a desire to be holy, to be like Christ. Isn't uh, the word Christian mean follower of Christ, that we are Christ ones, that we desire to be like Christ so others can see Christ in us? They can't see Christ in us if we have sin dominating our lives. Prayer more than anything else is the cry of the redeemed heart. The cry of the child of God for a righteousness to be true of our lives, even though it is violated by sin on a daily basis. We prove our connection, our our relationship with Adam in Genesis by either our the words that we speak, the thoughts that we have, or the deeds that we do each day. One of them convicts us of our sin. If it's not me sticking my foot in my mouth one day or my behavior or whatever the deal is, my thought life may suffer. And I have to go and got, go to God in prayer and ask for forgiveness. But we have a God that is able to cleanse us from all unrighteousness and purify us and to renew that relationship that we have. Sin imp- impedes that. But we can go to a God who is able Do you have a hunger for righteousness in your life? Well, number seven uh, element of prayer is that it is dependent on God's character. When we go to God, our whole petition is built upon the reality of who he is. If God was not a faithful God, if he was not a forgiving God, if he was not a compassionate God, would we go to him in prayer, knowing that he can meet the needs that we have, or answer the prayers that we, we give to him. The more we know the attributes of God, it should draw us to Jesus every moment of every day. That's why it's important when you're struggling with life and things that you're in the word. There's no fast food way about learning everything that you need to learn in a limited amount of time. You can't hurry through the word of God. And you can't hurry God as he teaches you and trains you up. Verse 18, and I love it, and it says it all here. 
uh, about we have nothing to bring to the foot of the cross. But verse 18 here in chapter 9 says, Oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city which is called by your name. For we are not presenting our supplications before you on account of any merits of our own, but on account of your great compassion. It is on his great compassion. We can't bring anything to the cross. It has to be him, not us. What are some of those attributes of God that Daniel prays? Well, back in verse 4, he says he keeps, that God keeps his covenants and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Verse 7 says, Righteousness belongs to you, O Lord. Verse 9 says, To the Lord our God belongs compassion and forgiveness. There is only one God, and that God is the God of his word. He is awesome. He is full of majesty. His grace is greater than our sin, and he forgives and cleanses. I've already said 1 John 1, 9, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. It is one thing to ask God to do something, not expecting him to do anything, but our God is able. There's an old Maranatha song that I just clung to when I first got saved, and that song was called, He is Able, because he is able. He is able to take the sin out of my life and the things that I was going through and able to change me. Man always looks at the outward appearance, but God changes the heart. Isn't that true? Amen? Thank goodness for that. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5.1, he says, Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The way to heavenly blessedness is opposite of what this world says. What the world says is the path to fulfillment is not what Jesus says is the path to blessing. To be in sport, poor in spirit is to speak of deep humility of realizing one's utter spiritual bankruptcy apart from God. It describes those who are acutely conscious of their own lostness and hopelessness apart from divine grace. And the kingdom of heaven is a gracious gift to those who sense their own poverty of spirit. There is a blessing that comes when you come to the end of yourself, because that's right where God wants you. To quit trusting in yourself and trust the God of the universe. When you realize you're broke, you don't have the answers, you need help. The truth is, we all are broken. We all need help. We all need God. And God takes the ripped and the torn and the ragged. He takes the overlooked, the undervalued, the written off, the left out, the destroyed. Have we all been there? Run over by this world? Run over by... Uh, people in our lifetime where we've been overlooked or destroyed. People have ran right through us. Like I said, uh, life on this side of heaven is, there's lots of trouble. Jesus even said that in Matthew 6. There's always going to be trouble on this side of heaven. God takes the broken and makes us whole. He makes us beautiful. So as you've listened today and as you've looked to his word, Uh, are you broken before God? There's a brokenness that we need to approach God with because we, without God, we can't do anything. Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. So anything we try to put our own strength in, our own intellect, it's rags compared to what Christ has brought 
and what Christ has done for us. He takes the crooked and makes it straight. He takes the broken and makes us whole. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the time that we have spent in your word. I thank you that your word is living and active, able to pierce the deepest parts of our soul, that there is no dull edge to it. Thank you for your word because it is life to us. It is the blueprint of how to live. We don't just read it once and turn away and go about living life. We have to seek uh, your word and we have to seek you every day. Lord, may your word be preeminent in our lives. May we walk out of here today being the light of Christ for all to see, that it may open up doors to evangelize and to witness, that, Lord, we would come to the end of ourselves and give it all to you. I pray these things in your name. Amen. And thank you. You're dismissed.